Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula and Hondo Gertz here with today's guest, Bilal Zuberi. We're so excited to have Bilal here. Um, at, at a particularly interesting time, there's recent news around Silicon Valley Bank, a lot of focus on the venture community, and Bilal is a real key figure in national security investing. Um, as a leader in, at Lux Capital, he focuses on finding founders that want to solve big, complex problems in several markets, climate, deep tech, enterprise software, and again, real focus on national security and defense tech. Bilal spent time as a technical founder and entrepreneur as well, so he's been on the other side of this equation, uh, went to MIT for his PhD, super smart, uh, and can go quite technical, um, and is an immigrant citizen in the U.S. and talks often about how grateful he is for the opportunities afforded here. So Bilal, thanks so much for joining. We're excited to get into your story today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Wow, Bilal, PhD at MIT. I guess I didn't know that. Um, it's awesome to have you here with us. You come from such an interesting mix of being founder an immigrant, and now I would say being one of the earliest thinking about venture tech in national security before it was kind of the cool thing to do. What what got you to this point here? How, how did you come from your background to uh, being kind of at the center of all these interesting communities? As VCs like to say, I fell into it, but that's a cop-out answer. Um, the reality is um, I come from a lower middle-class background in Pakistan. I have no business being here, but thanks to U.S. taxpayers who effectively, you know, one way or the other, made it possible for me, somebody like me, to get a full scholarship to come to the U.S. and study here. Uh, that's how I ended up here. And uh, similarly, from undergrad to moving to grad school, and then again, U.S. taxpayers paying through all kinds of research grants, including Air Force Research Lab grants that paid for my graduate education. So in, in some ways, thanks to my parents and thanks to American taxpayers, I, I got a great education and, and, and frankly felt um, as I walked into my career first job at BCG and then starting a business, feeling a weight on my shoulder that I have to do something that's more than just for myself. And I think a lot of immigrants feel that. And uh, it's almost like justifying to themselves why they are here in the first place uh, and showing and proving to themselves more than anybody else that they are contributing back to this country. Um, I think it's the same story that you hear again and again. So I'm not saying anything new here. Uh, a lot of immigrants realize that, feel that, and the same here. And that's how I got into building something that had scale and that had leverage. That led to starting a company. And as a part of that, um, hiring people, firing people, raising capital, and then eventually selling the business made me realize that this is a cycle that not a lot of people who have technical backgrounds and want to start businesses really know and understand and are taught. So how do we do that again and again and again? And turns out there's this thing called venture capital where, um, you know, you give money to startups as an investment, but money is the cheapest thing that you give to capital. What you really want to give them is your time, attention, network, and resources. So that's what brought me into venture capital. And I started um, investing in things where science and engineering were predominantly important. 
Um, and um, today I do the exact same thing at Lux Capital. We manage over $4 billion of capital and investing in what we call at the intersection of technology and sciences. Uh, technology enables us to scale and sciences allow us to build things that weren't possible before. There could be life sciences. So you can imagine drug discovery companies, health tech, med tech, diagnostics, uh, and so on. Um, they could be physical sciences, everything from semiconductor chips to autonomy, automation, future of manufacturing, um, and um, computer sciences, cutting edges of machine learning and AI and crypto and so on. Well, you, you telling that story and you say that it's a, a normal or regular uh, story, I think it's actually so significant and our listeners love to hear folks with background like yours. So thank you for sharing it, Bilal. Um, and many of our listeners aren't familiar with how VC and venture capital Works. They think maybe it's just focused on new technology development um, specifically, but it's, it plays a larger role in our ecosystem. Can you talk a little bit about how you define VC and what VCs look for when investing? So venture capital is, I'm not exactly sure if it's a U.S. invention, but I think it pretty close to it is. Um, it is very high risk capital to give to people who are enterprising and entrepreneurial. Um, it is basically doing what used to be called angel capital, but at scale, at, at an institutional level. Uh, angel capital used to be giving somebody you know and respect a chance to go build what they have to build. You know, back in the day, if you read books on venture capital, they'll talk about the whaling operations in, in the Boston area. And, you know, these were enterprising people. Many of them would go out and never come back. And those who came back brought back whales with them and they were became wealthy uh, and their sponsors became wealthy. That's how venture capital started. But the fundamental idea is that uh, large institutional capital in the U.S. So think about endowments, think about pension funds, think about, you know, teachers, pension funds and, 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 and other, you know, large family offices. You take a small portion of your net wealth and you say, I want to put that towards uh, building the next generation of companies. These are going to be higher risk endeavors, but if they do well, they will be higher return. That amount of man money is managed by venture capitalists. Venture capitalists are focused on finding and ident identifying spaces where such companies can be built, but more importantly than the spaces and the technologies, the people who can build those companies. Um, so we spend all of our time looking for these incredible humans that have the tenacity to um, build companies out of nothing um, and stay the course for a long time, usually very mission-driven founders rather than the opposite of that being a mercenary founder trying to make a quick buck. Um, and people who have a vision for the world to be a way that it isn't today. And in some ways, my job is to not only help uh, understand that vision, believe in that vision before even I fully understand it, to be honest, um, but to help them get to that and figure out what are all the resources that are going to be required along the way for, for doing that. Venture capital is, uh, for me, it has been an extremely rewarding career because you get to interact with not only some of the brightest people, uh, but also some of the most determined people and resilient people. Um, it is, in my opinion, the real driver of the U.S. economy today. Uh, and more important than anything else, it is really, you know, enabling us to be globally competitive. It is the cutting edges of technology, taking things that we are inventing in our universities, national labs and otherwise, and really making it a reality. Things that you and I as consumers may take for granted, but it's not trivial. 
right? It, it was somebody had to invent all these devices and all the things that we take for granted. I'll give a very, give a very simple example always that's very personal to me. When I came to this country in 1995, I had no money in my pocket. I was on full scholarship. I was working, you know, $4.70 scrubbing toilets and dishes to at the school cafeteria and, and, and custodial services. Um, it used to cost $4 a minute to call back to Pakistan, okay? Which meant that I would talk to my mother maybe like five minutes in an entire month, okay? And, uh, and that was not too long ago. That was when I came to college. Today, my mother calls me for free on video like five times a day oh. to the point where I have to say, please, I'm at work. I can't pick up the phone right now. That has been enabled by technology in, in, in every part of that, right? Like the fact that I have a mobile phone with a screen on it that my mom can dial into and literally look at me while I'm driving sometimes. Uh, the fact that the telecommunication services are what they are, the, the, everything that we have enabled through the internet, it, none of that was possible, you know, less than 30 years ago. That's what we see and technology helps happen. Yeah. So, Bob, I'm, I'm taken back because uh, and you and I have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get these two communities, national security community and venture community, working together as opposed to sometimes, you know, at best disconnected, sometimes against each other. And, and you know, both communities are mission-driven. They're highly determined. They're highly talented. But for some reason, we seem to struggle getting the two communities connected. And, and I think, you know, most of us have seen this kind of industrial base we built out of World War II is not the one that's going to drive us going forward. What are your, and I've, and I've actually heard you talk about, you know, many of the DOD industrial bases like dealing with the auto industry, maybe 20 or 30 years ago. What, what's your sense on um, why we've struggled so much to get the two communities kind of aligned towards the same thing and, and some areas where you've seen some success over your uh, career, maybe getting these communities better aligned than they have been. So you know the history of technology industry and military even better than I do. They used to work together. In fact, um, you know, the commonly known thing in technology is that, you know, until 20, 30 years ago, technology, it can, we're talking about cutting edge technology was developed for the military first and used by the military first. Then it would become available to US enterprises and corporations when it would be scaled a little bit. And then only eventually many years later will consumers have access to it, right? I mean, the last big example of that is the internet. Military had access to DARPAnet and then it became accessible to universities and some enterprises and eventually all of us got access to it and it changed our lives. Uh, and many other technologies before that, GPS and so on, we can go on. That changed about 25, 30 years ago probably after the advent of the internet. And what happened was that the latest and the greatest technology started to become available and being built for the consumer first. And, uh, you know, you and I had access to, we talk about often, you know, self uh, iPhones before anybody else did, before four-star generals did, before probably you did when you were at service. Uh, only a few years later would it become available to enterprises and there's this big deal, you know, bring your own device to work because your device is so much better than the, you know, shitty device that we're giving you. Um, and only much later than that it became available for military. So that, that changed. And during that time, uh, the realization set in among the, you know, the entrepreneurs, the founders and the tech community that military is very hard to work with and, and get commercial contracts out of. Um, and, and part of that has to do with the fact that um, technology industry started to have bigger ambitions to build bigger businesses. 
it was no longer enough to build a small business to be bought out for 10, 20, 30 million dollars by a Lockheed or a Raytheon. Almost like it, we were no technology industry wanted to establish and exist as an independent entity, building the next generation multi-billion dollar independent entities. And maybe that was seen as a threat by the incumbents uh, in the defense technology suppliers. But whatever it was, there was a push made, a deliberate one, in my opinion, to turn that startup industry almost into like this sort of this super small research segment, you know, part of the RDE or whatever you want to call it, like a sort of this research arm, you develop technology, but then you just hand it over to us and we'll take care of it. And that was not acceptable to the technology industry. We wanted to build products. We wanted to build products that would be used by the end users. We wanted to be paid for it and we wanted to build companies around it. Um, that uh, created a separation. Now, for a while, um, it didn't matter because there was so much opportunity on enterprise and consumer side that the startups could continue to function there. And we were sort of fighting a guerrilla warfare in Iraq and whatnot, right? Like we were really, you know, welding plates under Humvees so that roadside bombs don't kill soldiers. Well, it turns out that as we now have to shift our um, focus away from ragtag bands in mountains of, you know, Afghanistan and in Iraq to state-sponsored activities where we are, you know, essentially at war in, in Ukraine, we're potentially at war with China, potentially at war with Iran and, and many other flashpoints around the world. These are much more sophisticated entities. These are technically sophisticated entities where are what some people have called the hyperwar. Right. So there's robotics being used, autonomy being used, automation and AI, it's cybersecurity, it's it's a war on technology and war that utilizes data and information. Um, in that kind of a warfare, suddenly we are realizing that, oh, my God, all the innovation that we're seeing is coming out of the private sector. So how do we get access to that? And, and I think what, you know, what needs to happen now, and we've talked about this enough times, you know, all of us and many others, that the processes have been gummed up over the last 20, 30, 40 years to enable military to acquire products from the commercial sector. In some ways, you know, some of my friends like to say that in the last 20, 30 years, we've basically built two big companies and that's it in, in the private sector um, that services defense and national security establishment one being SpaceX and the other one being Palantir. I would argue that this is actually in spite of the DOD versus because of the DOD, right? Um, DOD would rather not have bought products from these companies, but they had no other choice. They tried their level best to not buy from these companies. And eventually the better technology won out and the better teams won out. Um, I give the example here of Pakistan has a um, Nobel Prize that it, one of its physicists won, uh, Professor Abdul Salam. It's not because Pakistan has an amazing education system. It was actually in spite of the terrible education system that he got the Nobel Prize. Um, and instead of accepting it and rewarding him, in subsequent years, we actually, when he wanted to establish a center for theoretical physics in Pakistan, we chased him out of the country. We declared him a persona non grata and chased him out of the country. So he went and established the Center for International Theoretical Non-Physics in uh, CTP in Trieste, Italy. Right? I hope we don't do that to the startup sector. Because right now we're in the phase where we've shown some success with the Palantir and SpaceX and a few others. We have these next generation companies, the Andurils, the Sail Drones, the Primers, the Shield AI, and you know, we can go down the list of a few other companies. Um, we hope that we're not run out of town um, because if that happens then the next generation is not getting funded here. 
It's a great point. And the two companies you mentioned are fairly large companies, SpaceX and Palantir. But there seems to be this trend in government to spur innovation by maximizing the number of new entrants into the space. And some believe that they're this has resulted in two small awards to two small, maybe unproven companies and, and just focused on the breadth, but not really the success or, or background. What's your take on what's happening here and, and maybe a, a different direction we should be going in? Yeah. So Hondo referred earlier to this conversation I've had before and, and uh, about the automotive industry. So automotive industry has existed in this country for hundred plus years. Um, if you go back, you know, and I built my startup in the automotive industry and it was a terrible idea back then. Uh, I wouldn't fund Bilal the entrepreneur as Bilal the VC. It's a bad idea. Um, and a bad idea, not because the technology was bad, because I failed to understand how bad the market was. The market, I had, had an amazing product. I still believe I had an amazing product, but the market was not willing to accept a product from the outside. And here's the reason why. The automotive industry was structured in a particular way and continues to be into a large extent. You have the OEMs, the GMs, the Fords, the Chrysler at that time, and then internationally, the same idea. And then you have the tier one suppliers. And this tier one suppliers, the OEMs don't really do much innovation. Right. Their innovation is that they have six, you know, heated uh, cup holders in, or cooled cup holders in, in the car. All the innovation they have outsourced to the primes or what they call the tier ones. So these are the continentals of the world, the corning of the world, the Bosches of the world. These become sub-supplier components. So the entire dashboard comes from one entity. The powertrain comes from another. Effectively, the engine comes from the other. Uh, the drivetrain comes from the other. The seats come from some other supplier. Um, and, and these are these established few. Now, it's more than five, which happens to be the number, approximately the number in the DOD, but maybe like 20. Right. And then what you have is the tier two suppliers and the tier two suppliers were where all the technology companies went. So my company was a tier two supplier. We were doing the advanced technology. We were doing a lot of material science research and manufacturing technology research and so on and bring it out. Um, But we our path to OEM, the end user and end customer was through the tier one. And the tier one was getting, you know, a great contract, but we were getting a cost plus contract. We were being told, you know, you've developed this advanced technology, all the research you've put into it. Okay, now what does it cost you to make that? And you're like, three bucks. Okay, we'll give you 350. I'm like, wait a second. So why did I put $25 million of research into this? And how am I going to get a return to my investors? And so on. At, at $3.50, you have to now produce this at scale, like millions and millions of these products for you to even return the money to the investors, let alone make them a profit, which is why the innovation was very limited. It was incremental. Okay? The same thing is sort of happening in, in the DOD space. We, we are um, giving lots and lots of these small amounts of grants. You know, we, you know, government officials love announcing that, you know, 500 companies and 5,000 companies and, you know, 27 states got these grants. And look, if you're going to create an entitlement program, you have every right to do that. You should do that and create jobs and whatever you need to do. But let's not confuse the need for cutting edge technology to be brought to market ASAP to make sure that our warfighter wins the wars that we put them in, right? Let's not confuse those two things. We're not doing research for research sake. This is not to pump out more PhDs like me. There was a utility in doing that. We should continue to do that. But let's not confuse that the money that needs to be given to these companies, that they can show then product market fit, that they can then take the technology further and create real um, real use cases uh, and then get commercial sales. We need to do that. In the automotive industry, a few big 
um, badass is the best way to describe it. A few badass people uh, effectively changed a lot of things over the last 10 years or 15 years. Like when Tesla first started, every one of my friends who were in the automotive industry bet against it. I actually lost a bet in, 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 in that regard because for a while Tesla didn't look that good. Um, but Tesla came in and basically said, I'm going to build a new automotive OEM. Okay? Not even a tier one. I'm going to build an OEM. And everybody said, that's not happened in 50 years, never going to happen. In fact, the industry fought it, right? Like you need to sell your car. You and I go to a dealership to buy a car. Turns out Tesla does not have any dealerships. The dealerships refuse by law in all 50 states. They refuse to sell Teslas. Tesla said, fine, we'll open up a store inside a mall. And people are like, you're going to sell, you know, a car out of a mall. Guess what? People are buying Tesla exactly like that. In fact, they don't even go to the, the, to the mall anymore. You can just go to your computer and buy a Tesla. You just go in, you write the color, you write the figure, you know, get the price. You know, it's literally probably buying, you know, Christmas decoration lights on Amazon takes more clicks <laughs> than uh, buying a Tesla online. Um, that changed everything. Tesla's success, even if Tesla is worth half of what it is today, which is already half of what it was worth six months ago, uh, and I hope it's not turtles all the way down, but um, even even at, that, at those valuations, it spurred innovation across the industry, right? We have new tier ones coming up. We have new tier two companies that are saying we're virtual tier ones. People are creating direct, you know, there's at least eight public companies now that are building LiDAR, which is just one part of the technology stack for the automotive company. There's full stack automotive companies out there that are building automotive, you know, cars and on the streets from Motional to many others, right? Rivian came about, there's actually cars driving around Rivian around my neighborhood all the time owned by people. This company, you know, would you and I have said should have existed 15 years ago that what we, the world really needs is two new electric car companies. So I think innovation happens when, you know, going back to the original conversation, not because of just technology, but because individuals refuse to accept the status quo. And our job is to find them, support them, and then hope for the best. <laughs> but um, I think the same thing is happening in DOD right now or in the national security broadly, but DOD especially, where you have these founders that are really putting their life, blood and sweat into this. Uh, they're working their tail off. Uh, they are facing every other uh, constraint or uh, headwind that any other entrepreneur is facing. You know, the COVID happens and they're building hardware and the rest of the world can go online and their friends are like sitting at home making dating apps or whatever, not sitting at home. But if you're building a hardware device, you're in person. You know, I had people who are risking their lives being in person and building these products and, you know, building the prototypes to give it to the customers. Right. Um, uh, all the stuff we hear about SVB and, you know, the war in Ukraine and the economic crisis that's ensuing around the world, the trade war with China. So we can't really get parts that we needed because, you know, we had, you know, wholesale moved our supply chains to China and now we're trying to bring them back. The semiconductor access, all the security issues, you know, some, somebody like me getting calls. So do you have people of Chinese origin in your companies? And you ask them, do you mean Chinese citizens or do you mean what, what does Chinese origin mean? And they're like, well, it's up to you to figure out. It's all the moral issues, ethical issues that come with that. So these companies are facing all of those issues. And then at the same time, they have a customer who is sort of like, you have to beat them on the head to get the product. 
you know, you need this product, my friend. It's almost like, you know, help me help you, <laughs> right? Uh, I am in awe of the founders who are building in these spaces. I think, uh, you know, long-term, you, you know, go 20, 30 years out. I'm in awe of the people within the DOD establishment who are supportive of that, right? Like there are individual heroes who are going out of their way um, because they see that this is the future. They're fighting their own bosses. They're fighting their own colleagues to make space for these companies. I think we will look back at, at this, you know, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road and we'll say these were really pioneers. But I think the way our military, if, if we are going to be, you know, sort of the one of the most successful companies with the, one of the strongest militaries in the world 50 years down the road, it'll be because the private sector and the public sector work together. So, Bilal, I mean, that's, that was a, a great summary of a lot of what we've talked about. Um, moving from the, um, you know, admiring the issue and, and the challenges we face, what have you seen practically you know, or what do you recommend both on the startup companies you're working with who are, for all various reasons, want to sell into national security? Uh, how do you talk to them about good strategies to work with the DOD. And, and again, I really admire the bridges you built within the folks in the DOD. What do you tell them they can do to best enable uh, the communities that are starting up um, and want to sell into the DOD? What, what do you tell them is best things they can do to help, you know, push the ball forward sometimes in spite of their own bosses and bureaucracies? Yeah. Um, you know, I have a 12 year old son who, thinks that he will one day go play for the NBA. And I haven't had the conversation yet of like, but son, your genetics. Uh, <laughs> um, so while he's still on that mission, I keep telling him play the long game, right? So it's not about getting frustrated one day and then giving it up, but it's also not about, you know, trying to do everything all at once. In fact, there's this great quote, I play for him this video interview of Kobe Bryant, where he said, you know, there was, he was 10, 12 years old and he really sucked at basketball. Um, and there was a tournament he played a one summer where he scored not even one point. And then he says, but I really want to play basketball. And he says, what I did, said was, I will, I will take this on as a task upon myself. He said, I worked three hours a day, one thing at a time. So first I said, I need the shooting practice ready. Right. So I, for six months, I did nothing but shooting, got it out of the way, you know, and then, you know, the next thing and the next thing. Um, but working three hours a day, because everybody else was probably spending one and a half hours twice a day or twice a week. He was doing every day, three hours. He said, just math catches up with you, right? Like you just, people just can't compete with you. And obviously we know what Kobe Bryant became. And I'm sure that was not the only reason why he became that, but the same thing applies for startups. Just keep at it, keep at it, keep fighting at it. You know, the others will just give up. The person who was your biggest, you know, foe is probably gonna move on going to get promoted or demoted or retire, um, you know, or if that was at a prime, it's going to move on to something else. Um, keep, keep at it. But, so, so that's one thing. But the second thing is there are individual champions within the DOD who have small amounts of budget available to them. There are little pockets of money available, there are little pockets of innovation within DOD. You have to go find them. Right? You have to go find access to that. You have to build products that somebody will buy. Here's the, here's the thing about product that most people don't understand. Product means you have a customer, right? Without a customer, you don't have a product. You have a technology. Like if I take a technology and I put plastic wrapper around it, I haven't created a product. 
I've only created a product where I have found a customer, I figured out what they're willing to pay, and hence I figured out the pricing I will give to that customer. I will, I, I've, based on that, I figured out what features I can fit into that product for that price, and can I still make a profit doing so? Understanding that and figuring that out is really important, right? And which is why in Silicon Valley, this, this product manager PM role is seen really important because you can have many products in a single company and each product has to be owned by somebody who says, I'll take this technology and engineering and I'll take this customer on the other side and I'll marry the two and I'll create something that actually works. And then you can give it to manufacturing and so on and so forth. Um, so the the important thing in defense tech startups is that, you know, I, I often see people who are technically mission driven, who've been working at it for 10, 10, 20 years and they want to build a company around this and they want to serve the military. And then they say, should I hire a four-star general on my board? Should I hire a head of business development in DC? Should I hire a lobbying firm? Perhaps in, in the long term, you need all of the above. But the first and foremost thing is you need to hire that person that you can call your PM equivalent that can go and figure out where is the customer within the DOD? Because DOD is not one monolith, as you know, hundreds, if not thousands of you know, individual uh, entities that will be willing to buy your, your product. If you look at the successful companies, um, you know, uh, Palantir, SpaceX, and others, that's what they did. Relentless zeal to go figure out how to break through and get money. You couldn't, you couldn't build SpaceX with just Elon Musk money, even if he had even more money than he has, right? It just wasn't possible. Um, he could have been just killed with just not getting the licenses to be able to launch a damn thing, right? Like bureaucracy can kill you in a hundred ways. So he had to find people who were willing to support him. Same thing for Palantir, right? Um, so um, if, if um, you know, um, if Palantir was selling software wrapped in services, right, Anduril, for example, one of our portfolio companies is selling software wrapped in hardware, right? You, they're finding ways to sell their product. The end product is what technology in Silicon Valley does best. It's software that scales, it's software that grows rapidly, that evolves rapidly, but you have to wrap it around something that sells. So when we're looking at startups and you know, you ask, what do we look for? There's general, generally in every startup we look for, you know, is the team amazing? So that's very unique and important. The second is the product, like what is the product? The third is the market, like is this large enough that it matters to, especially to a fund our size? Then it is, what kind of capital will it need to get there, right? Like nuclear power is amazing, but might require billions and billions of dollars out of our reach. So, you know, how do we make that happen if we're going to invest in that space? And finally, if you build it and if they come, will you be rewarded for it? you know, the multiples are going to be high and so on. So those are the high level things we look for. But when it comes to defense tech companies, one thing becomes extremely important, which is pretty much my observation right now, and I think they'll change 10, 20 years from now, but right now, pretty much anything I've seen in defense technology industry from startups is already world-class compared to what the defense industry is using today. It's already cutting edge. Anything in hypersonics or anything in, you know, uh, computer graphics or chips or AI, um, so the question is not pushing further on just technology, continue to do that. But the important thing is, do you have the team that knows how to sell? If you look at the differences between SpaceX, Palantir, Anduril, SailDrone and others, and thousands of other startups that are defense tech companies, what you find is that these people had, you know, not only those motivational uh, founders and leaders, but also they had the capacity and the capability that they built to pound the streets in DC. Why I'm here today, 
right? Like you have to come here and spend time here and build relationships here because the other side has to be able to trust you. And then slowly you start making inroads. It's so many great points there. One, I want to footstomp is this product versus technology conversation. It's something that comes up a lot, but not framed exactly that way, which I think will really resonate with our listeners and gets to the aspects of the automotive industry that I think you've highlighted as so relevant and really around partnerships too. So I think when we're seeing all these small individual companies, they don't have to be small, but maybe have one aspect of the stack that they're offering that make it hard to adopt or hard to sell. So I think the teaming aspect is something we see as important and and reflected in your automotive example. Um, But the question I wanted to ask you is, is you're going through this advice that you give founders. We're sitting here a couple years into very harder times, COVID, you've mentioned several hurdles that founders are going through, but really difficult economic outlook and the news from SVB and the like. Are you still very bullish on defense and national security as a market or how are you thinking about what's ahead in that sense? Um, Sometimes I, you know, when I'm quietly by myself, I realize and think to myself that I mostly invest in industries that I wish did not need to exist. Okay. But unfortunately, the reality is that those problems exist and they need to be solved. You know, my, one of my early investments was in uh, a gun and bomb detection technology for preventing mass killings and mass shootings. I wish that didn't need that. I wish there was no need for that company to exist. But to the extent that company needs to exist, my company is, you know, really saving lives. Um, today, if you were to ask an average investor in Silicon Valley where money is going, they will tell you three areas. One is AI, generative AI, because we believe that that's, there's been a you know, sharp turning point around the corner of what that technology can now enable and do, uh, especially looking out into the future and effectively creating a future. Uh, the second is uh, climate tech. I think this generation is starting to catch up to the fact that, you know, this is no longer, you know, some, um, uh, you know, floods happening in some other part of the world, but this is happening everywhere all the time. You know, there's been like, what, 10 atmospheric rivers in Menlo Park this year. You know, like this country, this place where I live 10 years ago was like drought. Today, we have trees falling everywhere, flooded streets, you know, entire towns that you cannot enter. I mean, it's just craziness. So people are realizing that and putting investments into that. And the third is defense. And the defense is because, again, you don't have to be the brightest tool in the shed to be able to figure out that we're at war in Ukraine. We have Saudi Arabia and Iran signing deals with each other in China. We have all the conflicts in China and the South China Sea. Um, and, and North Korea is, you know, just off the blip right now, but the first chance he gets, he's going to rear his head again. And, and we haven't even started to touch Africa where there's, you know, a lot of extremism in certain parts that is just waiting to rear its heads up. So it's a very unstable environment. And of course, economic instability around the world exacerbates that, right? All you need is somebody to use that economic issues and then turn that into, you know, either a religious issue or a political issue or something else. Uh, And unfortunately, we as a country haven't done the best job in creating friendships around the world. You know, no matter how good we want to do, um, somehow we end up looking bad. (laughs) And and I haven't quite figured out how we successfully manage to do that every single time. Um, But that is the case, right? We have shown all kinds of support for Saudi Arabia. 
through some pretty tough times. We're not even, we don't have to go very far, right? Even just with the Khashoggi murder, right? Like we sort of took a little bit of a step back and said, yeah, we'll let it slide. Uh, but guess what? And, and then we said, you know, sign up this peace agreement with Israel and we're going to try to, you know, make some good things happen in that region. And, and now they're signing peace deals and, and trade deals with Iran. So all of that happening means that there's going to be continued conflict and there's going to be continued need for us to assert, um, you know, what we consider to be fundamental American values around the world. And I, I really believe in that. I mean, look, I, I, I grew up in Pakistan. I, my family still lives in Pakistan. Right. I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen, but I have I'm probably the only U.S. citizen in my family. Um, actually, my sister is a U.S. citizen, too, living in Chicago. Uh, but um, but it, it, it is clear that, you know, we're not out to just make war. Right. It might look like that if you're sitting in that part of the world. But there's no soldier I've ever met who's just like, you know, put me in the line of guns and, and weapons coming at me. Like, you know, that, that's not why they sign up. <laughs> Maybe they sign up just so that somebody pays for their school education, but, uh, but, but they're willing to fight for what we believe to be, uh, you know, American values. And American values to me um, are, uh, are, are really important. Uh, and I think they want, we want to do good for the world. We may not know exactly how to do it. And I think we will have to do that more assertively going forward. It's going to be less passive. Um, and, and, and I think while that is happening, there will be more investments going in. I will say that more capital intensive projects become slower during these times. Um, the, you know, what, as an example, what Andural has been able to do, which is, you know, we will take on the full R&D bet on our own hands. We will take the cost upon ourselves and sell you the product. Uh, is going to be possible, but for fewer products. Um, even Andural didn't take on, which is going to go build a tank for you, right? Like they were doing technology products that weren't that capital intensive. But I think we will see certain slowdowns in that. But by and large, the investment appetite remains high. We do need to see successes on the other side, right? Like we're at the end of the day, fiduciaries of money for other investors. And those other investors are you know, mothers and grandmothers in the Midwest whose endowments and whose, you know, children's tuition money and, you know, their pensions are being deployed. We have to provide returns to those. And if we are not able to do that, then there's going to be a problem. And I think what you hear a lot now um, from VCs is that, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of companies have been funded by VCs in the last five years or so. And I think we need to start seeing successes and successes are not like, you know, large exits and it's real revenues. I want military to show that there's been a product market fit. We continue to see products technologically uh, and price-wise better, but they don't get the contract because they don't have employees over six states. Well, which startup has employees in six states? Well, if you don't have six states, you have 12 senators who are not gonna vote for you. Well, that's a big problem. It's a big fucking problem. How do we solve that problem, right? And, and you know, uh, the most brilliant technical founder is probably not the savviest DC handholder, right? So how do we solve that problem, right? And, and I think this is where we're all trying to figure that out, right? Like I haven't served in the military. So I'm always looking at Hondo and like, what did this acronym mean? <laughs> Who are we talking about here? Um, but 
you know, uh, there are organizations here who could be helpful. SVDG is an example of an organization that could be helpful, right? You know, when you're starting up a business as a young grad student out of Berkeley that's built some new database technology or machine learning AI algorithm, or, you know, you build a new open AI algorithm, let's say seven years ago, these are all companies that only came into being six, seven, eight years ago, and now they feel like, wow. Um, if you're doing that, you, you, you say, I want to start a company around that. So you say, okay, I need to hire a VP of engineering. I need to hire a VP of marketing, VP of sales and so on. Well, you know, in Silicon Valley, you can go interview these guys. There are people who will help you interview these guys. There are lots of these guys available. You say, which flavor of it I need and you go hire them. Now imagine a defense tech company and you say, I'm going to sell into Navy. I have this autonomous ocean-going drone that can carry any number of sensors on board. Uh, it does not require any fuel, and it can be out of the sea for months, if not years at a time. But I'm going to go, you know, the Navy is the obvious customer. Who do you hire? Do you hire chief acquisitions officer within the Navy? You know, I've... I he, said, he, he's not that good. You don't hire him. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Honda, it's it's you, you know you know this company well, right? Like when you know now, obviously they've developed, a, you know, and thanks to you, they've developed an entire team, you know, in DC. But where do you even start? And what do these characters look like? You can end up with the wrong person and base your entire effort off of that wrong person for two, three years, run out of all your money and not make any inroads. Um, so I think th those are the kinds of things that startups, we need the ecosystem to solve that for the startup because every startup doing that on their own simply doesn't work. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. And, and one thing I really admire with you, Bilal, is you are not afraid to get out of your comfort zone. You're not afraid to go introduce yourself to somebody else, meet a diverse set of folks, uh, approach it with a level of humility, um, but make connections, which, I th which again, I think uh, not only for business reasons, but personal reasons. What advice would you give to those folks in wherever they are in the ecosystem? Because I think to some degree, until folks get to know each other, they can't uh, respect each other. Until they can respect each other, they can't trust each other. And that's really hard to do reading LinkedIn articles or, or not getting out and meeting folks. What, what's your experience been of the value of getting out and, and making connections across a really diverse set of communities? And, and what would you recommend to those young folks, whether you're in the DOD or in the startup community, uh, about the value of that? Um, you know, Hondo, I'm, I am the guy who in 1995, when I came to this country, I didn't, I'd never seen a McDonald's before. I'd never ordered at a McDonald's before. Things that my 10-year-old takes for granted, right? So I walk up to a McDonald's and I was at that point not eating meat. So I'm like, what do I eat? And like, you know, uh, cheeseburger. And then cheeseburger comes and it's a burger with cheese on it. I'm like, it said cheese. Why is there meat in it? And then you realize, <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> and you can imagine the guy on the other side looking at me like, what the fuck is going on here? Um, but, you know, in some ways, the reason I bring that up is to say, you know, you have to know what you don't know. Sometimes you learn by doing and you realize that you just, you just don't know. So you have to learn. So I had to learn. You know, just like I had to learn if you have, you sit on a table and you have like 17 different forks in front of you because the queen is about to sit on the table with you. You have to figure out which fork goes first and which is for the salad and which is for the dessert. You have to figure that out. And, and, and you're going to figure that out by either looking at other people and seeing what they're doing or just straight out asking other people. Right? And just saying, hey, how do I do this better? And I think more people need to do this, right? You and I have talked about this a lot. Silicon Valley was happy-go-lucky for 25 years. Basically, the, the prototype was that these are like, you know, uh, dorks and geeks who sit on their couches, eat pizza, drink beer maybe, and code. 
and write dating apps and gaming apps, right? I mean, that was the, that was the stereotype of a technology geek. Um, and they were making a lot of money doing that, right? They, were, they would launch a game and a lot of people would start feeding virtual fish and you make millions of dollars, right? And, and, and nobody, you know, kind of people talk, thought of them as that, you know, kind of quirky, weirdo dudes, but that's fine, right? Until the companies that they were building were toppling, supposedly helping topple governments around the world. Suddenly we're in the mainstream. Suddenly we're talking about our elections are all kaput because, you know, some young guy called Zuckerberg decided to allow certain amounts of data to be shared with some other entity, right? So um, these guys need to understand that they do not know how DC works, how the government works, the responsibility that elected officials have and how the impact of their technologies is, you know, what, what is it doing to the rest of the world? But the same thing with the DOD. A lot of DOD and, you know, of course, uh, you, you, know, you know a lot more about it than, than I ever will. Um, it was like, you know, you, you thought of it as you're sitting at the airport and a guy in a uniform comes by, you stand up, salute maybe, and maybe say, thank you for your service, right? You almost took it for granted everything's right. Well, everything is not right. There's corruption within the DOD. There's bad stuff that DOD does um, and, and people aren't held accountable. So they were going about their own business as in nobody has to look at us. You know, it's almost like $1 trillion budget almost, right? At least in the next few years it will be and very little accountability. And the accountability comes almost like the line item. You know, did you spend $27 million on buying this? Yes. Okay, good. Move on. Well, how does that work? Like, you, you know, people who are f fighting, you know, at the front lines don't have any capacity to change what they need to do based on the circumstances they're facing. So that's not accountability. So I've, talk I've talked in the past about how to turn DOD into more of a company-like environment where you have a board of directors, that's your Congress, but then give the executives the capacity and the capability to make decisions. Let them figure out the organizational change that they need to do to make those decisions. Well, Bilal, thank you so much. So many great ideas here. I think your emphasis on the importance of people, partnerships, the teams you're looking at combined with your incredible story is so encouraging, especially as we sit here during uncertain times ahead. You made a great point that there are still problems to be solved here. The government's a great customer in an economic downturn. So I think your advice to founders is, is really important. And I can't help but call out your sweatshirt here, Defense Technology Democracy. I think you are championing these issues out on the West Coast. It's so important and we appreciate all you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for obviously you guys for doing what you're doing and bringing out the champions of, you know, defense technology innovation here. I'm, I'm actually just the financier. So I'm like the least interesting person here, but I've heard a lot of your podcasts and, you know, some of the people that you brought in, in fact, within the DOD, these are really, um, these are the champions. These are the people that we look to for helping advance the cause. A lot of the change has to come from within, within the technology industry and within the DOD. And I think the two are talking to each other. There's a long ways to go, but uh, any nudge that we can give can move in the right direction. The time is right, right? Like this, when there's a primordial soup of so much changing, you know, the, the politics, the economics, and uh, during those times is when important decisions get made. Hey, we got to get our act together and we got to do this the right way rather than, you know, this is a wartime CEO, as one VC has said. This is not a time for, this is not a peacetime. We are at war and we have to figure out a wartime stance and we got to make sure that we have the right technologies come in. Look what we did in the last two, three years with COVID. We went from, oh, I don't know what is COVID to we don't have masks to, you know, okay, we're going to just vaccinate the entire population. And uh, despite all the problems and all the differences and all the issues that came with it, we've dealt with it. You know, you and I are sitting right face to face and we're not worried about giving COVID to each other. Um, I think the same thing can be done in, in, in the DOD side as well. 
It's awesome. Thanks so much, Bill. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.